Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardhan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich. Online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Indra's Search, the Self in the Upanishads. One way to think about the distinctiveness of Indian as opposed to European philosophy is that it first emerged and was always pursued in a religious context. After all, we think of Buddhism, Jainism, and Hinduism primarily as religions, not schools of philosophy, even if these traditions produced many philosophical arguments and texts. But this contrast between philosophy in India and in Europe can be challenged. Religious ideas were rarely far from the concerns of European thinkers, from the pagans in antiquity to the theologians of the medieval period and beyond. And of course, it's notoriously difficult to say whether or in what sense Buddhism constitutes a religion. Fortunately, this is a podcast on the history of philosophy, not the history of religion, so we don't necessarily need to decide that issue. We do, however, need to notice and understand the undeniably religious elements in the ancient Indian texts we are approaching from a philosophical angle. Among these elements, probably the most striking is the presence of gods, who routinely appear as characters in the Upanishads and the Mahabharata. Despite rejecting much of the ritual practice and intellectual content of Brahmanic culture, the Buddhists also continued to recognize and talk about the gods. What philosophical relevance do the gods have for these traditions? Can we even speak of a natural theology in Buddhism or the sacred texts of Hinduism? If so, then only by dropping some of the expectations we might associate with that phrase. If the gods are a striking presence in these texts, a striking absence is any interest in creation of the world, if by creation we mean bringing the universe to exist out of nothing and at a distinct point in time. Instead, we standardly find a picture of world cycles, each cycle lasting for a vast period and being followed by another equally lengthy period. On the other hand, we already saw in the third episode that in the Rig Veda, the gods are said to have extracted the species of animals from Purusha, and one particular god, Prajapati, is briefly described as a creator. He appears again in this guise in the Mahabharata, where he is said first to fashion a body for himself, and then the matter underlying the whole universe, from which he makes all other things. The Upanishads also occasionally convey the idea that all things are caused by or depend on something, since in these texts, Brahman is a fundamental support for all reality. Indeed, the word Brahman means that which bears up all things. Still, if Brahman is divine, it is a rather impersonal divinity. It is rarely said to create, reward, or punish. Already in the earlier Vedas, the universe is portrayed as having a moral order independent of any theological force. That continues to be the case with the development of ideas about karma, where God's involvement often consists only in a kind of cosmic bookkeeping, since he is invoked to explain how it is that our good and bad deeds are guaranteed to affect our future fates. For these reasons, the great scholar Bimal Krishna Matilal has written that in Indian philosophy, the gods are seen as window dressing, and more a part of the cultural heritage of India than anything else. Yet the gods are still there. We may not find creation from nothing or a divine command theory of ethics, but we do find gods in our philosophical texts. Indeed, we even find them taking part 
in philosophical discussions. The teacher at the center of the Bhagavad Gita is Krishna, an avatar or incarnation of the god Vishnu. And they appear as sage-like interlocutors in the Upanishads, which may be understood as a strategy for lending authority to the teachings being unfolded. One of the most famous of all stories in the Upanishads has as its main character Indra. He is a familiar divinity for anyone who has paged through the Rig Veda, though certainly not the only god acknowledged in that text. Natural phenomena like wind, sun, heaven, and dawn are recognized as deities, and elements in the Vedic ritual, like Agni, the ritual fire, and Soma, the sacrificial plant, are also seen as divine. But since the Rig Veda centers on the sacrifice of Soma, and since this plant is offered up to Indra, he is the most prominent god in the text, far more so, for example, than Vishnu, who plays only a minor role. All the more noteworthy, then, that in the Chandogya Upanishad, Indra should be presented not as an almighty creator, or even a priestly king, a role he is sometimes given in the Rig Veda, but instead as searching after wisdom, as a figure who takes to heart the ubiquitous Upanishadic exhortation to go in search of your true self. As we saw in the last episode, this search ends with the realization that there is a hidden correspondence between oneself and the cosmos, and that both in turn correspond to the space in which the Vedic ritual is carried out. You'd think that as a god, Indra would be explaining this to a human. Instead, he is the one on a journey of self-discovery. The gods and demons, we are told, have heard that Prajapati speaks of a self by discovering which one obtains all the worlds and all one's desires are fulfilled. This fits with the presentation of Prajapati in the Rig Veda, which, in addition to exalting him as a creator, says that he possesses a knowledge beyond that of the other gods. Along with one of the demons, Virochana, Indra goes to live as a celibate in Prajapati's ashram, in hope of learning the secret of this self. The first thing they learn is patience. It takes 32 years before Prajapati finally speaks, but only to ask Indra and Virochana what they want. Up until this point, the story will be familiar to anyone who has tried to get their driver's license renewed. But the ensuing conversation is one you wouldn't get out of any government bureaucrat. When Prajapati learns of their quest to discover the self, he fobs them off with an answer he knows to be false. We'll quote the passage at some length to give you a flavor of the text. Look at yourselves in a pan of water and let me know if there is anything you do not perceive about yourselves. So they looked into a pan of water. Prajapati asked them, what do you see? And they replied, sir, we see here our entire body, a perfect likeness down to the very hairs of the body, down to the very nails. Prajapati told them, adorn yourself beautifully, dress well, and spruce yourself up, and then look into a pan of water. So they adorned themselves beautifully, dressed well, and spruced themselves up, and then looked into a pan of water. Prajapati asked them, what do you see? And they replied, Sir, as the two of us here are beautifully adorned, well-dressed, and all spruced up, in exactly the same way are these, sir, beautifully adorned, well-dressed, and all spruced up. That is the self, that is the immortal, that is the one free from fear, that is Brahman, Prajapati told them. And the two of them left with contented hearts. Seeing the two depart, Prajapati observed, there they go, without learning about the self, without discovering the self.
But Indra isn't so easily fooled. He quickly realizes that the reflected self cannot be the self for which he seeks, for if the body can be made beautiful, so too can it become lame and crippled. He returns for further instruction. Prajapati makes him wait another 32 years, at which point Indra presumably has learned to have more patience than a major city hospital. But his reward is only to be fobbed off again, this time with the following answer. The one who goes happily about in a dream, that is the self, that is the immortal, that is the one, free from fear, that is Brahman. Indra falls for the lie at first, but is unconvinced upon reflection. The self, as it appears in dreams, can still suffer anxiety and disappointment. He goes back for a better response and is told to, you'll never guess, wait 32 more years. Still, he doesn't get the real answer, but is told, when one is fast asleep, totally collected and serene, and sees no dreams, that is the self, that is the immortal, that is the one free from fear, that is Brahman. Yet again, Indra goes away happy. Yet again, he starts to have doubts and returns to Prajapati. This time he needs to wait only five more years, making a total of 101 years, which by an amazing coincidence is the same length of time you'll probably need to wait to hear the entire history of philosophy covered in podcast form. At this point, Indra is finally given the true answer. You'll be glad to hear that you only have to wait a few minutes to learn what it is. First, though, we want to dwell on the nature of this story and the way it is told. Prachavati displays an astonishing reluctance and the willingness to deceive not just the demon, Virochana, but even a god. He also insists on long periods of harsh living as a condition for receiving his instruction. It's also noteworthy that Indra only seems to improve his understanding by going away, content with the answer he's received, and then beginning to question that answer. Progressively more sophisticated accounts of the self are presented as the grudging concessions of a god who is reluctant to share his wisdom even with another divinity. Indra is forced to go step by step through numerous proposals, each an improvement on its predecessor. There's an implied idea here about how knowledge and learning work, if not in general, then at least when it comes to the central Upanishadic concern of the self. One cannot simply leap to a final, adequate grasp of the self without first having other preparatory understandings. Before moving on to each new stage of understanding, Indra needs to understand what was inadequate about the previous stage. Indeed, one must see why each idea of the self is false if one is even to speculate upon the truth or falsity of the next proposal. If Indra did not first come to see that his self cannot be a reflected image, he could not appreciate the less obvious doctrine that the true self is the one he encounters in dreams. Notice too that Prajapati lets Indra figure out for himself what is wrong with each inadequate understanding. Indra must not just understand that he is not a reflection or the one who enjoys a dreamless sleep. He must also come to see the flaws in these accounts as the result of his own personal investigation and discovery. So, Prachapati could not simply have told Indra the final doctrine straight away, nor could he have told him that any of the preceding doctrines were false. He could only feed Indra each doctrine and wait to see if Indra will discover it to be false. Why is the self so hard to find, and why does its discovery demand this do-it-yourself approach? It takes Indra, who, remember, is a god, more than a century to find out, even with Prachapati prodding him along. 
The answer may be that the self is, ironically, so close that it is nearly impossible to find. Things that are outside us are usually possible objects of sensation. If you want to perceive the Eiffel Tower, you just need to go to Paris, but no plane ticket will bring you to a vantage point from which you can behold the self. Nor is the self something that can be grasped through some process of deduction or via the testimony of another person. There is, as the later Indian philosophers would say, no pramanna leading to the knowledge of the self. As we suggested in the last episode, Brahman and the self make knowledge possible without themselves being knowable. Our natural instinct when looking for the self is to seek it among the objects of consciousness, since this is the strategy that works with all other things. But in this one case, that strategy is ill-conceived. Other passages in the Upanishads confirm that the self is not within the purview of the senses and mind, precisely because it is what makes sensing and thinking possible, so that it is too close to be seen. In the great forest Upanishad, this idea is expressed by the sage Yajnalvakya, shown in conversation with his wife Maitreyi. Again, we'll quote this at some length. When there is a duality of some kind, then the one can smell the other, the one can see the other, the one can hear the other, the one can greet the other, the one can think of the other, and the one can perceive the other. When, however, the whole has become one's very self, then who is there for one to smell, and by what means? Who is there for one to see, and by what means? Who is there for one to hear, and by what means? Who is there for one to greet, and by what means? Who is there for one to think, and by what means? Who is there for one to perceive, and by what means? By what means can one perceive him by means of whom one perceives this whole world? Look, by what means can one perceive the perceiver? About this self, one can only say, not, not. He is ungraspable, for he cannot be grasped. He is undecaying, for he is not subject to decay. He has nothing sticking to him, for he does not stick to anything. He is not bound, yet he neither trembles in fear nor suffers injury. Again, the point is that the self is not an object of thought. In fact, it is not even a possible target of language, which is why Yajnalvakya says that one can only say of it, not, not. As the same Brahman says elsewhere, you can't see the seer who does the seeing, you can't hear the hearer who does the hearing. You can't think of the thinker who does the thinking, and you can't perceive the perceiver who does the perceiving, the self within all is this self of yours. All of this helps us to make sense of the stages of Indra's education. Of the three bogus accounts he has offered, the first two attempt to represent the self as a possible object of consciousness. Perhaps it is an object of sensory awareness, the reflected image in a pool of water. Surely not. It is the subject of sensation, not something that is sensed. Perhaps then it is instead an object of dream consciousness. Indra again sees through the ruse and is ready to move on to the idea that the self is no object of consciousness at all, but simply whatever undergoes dreamless, contentless sleep. But Indra realizes that this is not the self because it is in fact nothing at all. As he observes, this self does not even know any of these beings here, it has become completely annihilated. Once Indra has diagnosed the shortcomings of all these proposed ideas of the self and shown himself to be a waiter more expert than you'll find in any restaurant, he is ready to hear the truth from Prajapati. And here it is. 
The one who is aware, let me smell this, that is the self. The faculty of smell enables him to smell. The one who is aware, let me say this, that is the self. The faculty of speech enables him to speak. The one who is aware, let me listen to this, that is the self. The faculty of hearing enables him to hear. The one who is aware, let me think about this, that is the self. The mind is his divine faculty of sight. Is this answer worth the wait? Well, the conception of self found here can claim to improve on those which have come before. Prajapati presents the self as that which underlies thought, speech, and sensation. Another of the Upanishads uses the analogy of a chariot. The intellect is the charioteer, the mind the reins, the body the chariot itself, while senses are the horses that pull the whole thing along. But that might suggest a more active understanding of the self than the one Prajapati puts forth. Strictly speaking, the self is the source of neither action nor will. It stands still, observing itself as it watches, as it hears and thinks. It is not merely the one who sees, nor the one who decides to look, but the one who is aware of seeing, of looking. Yet, neither is it a detached or impassive self, disengaged from its own desires and actions, because it is aware of itself even as it pursues them. Again, the self is that in virtue of which the subject of consciousness is self-conscious, but is not itself an object of consciousness. Yet, in what can self-discovery consist if the self is not something we can discover? A helpful hint can be found in the great forest Upanishad, where Yajnalvakya tells his wife, When a drum is being beaten, you cannot catch the external sounds, you catch them only by getting hold of the drum or the men beating that drum. His proposal is then that, when we experience sensation, we can catch the sensing self only by getting hold of the sensing. When thinking goes on, even the thinker can catch his or her self only by getting hold of the thinking. We reach the self not directly, but by catching it in its activity of sensing and thinking. Thus is the self discovered in the shadowy edges of experience. Philosophers nowadays might put the point by saying that the self is known only through the phenomenological quality of thinking, in the flavor of the experience of what it is like to think. There is something that it feels like from within to be thinking, and in focusing upon this instead of the thought one is thinking, one comes to be obliquely aware of the self. We should abandon our instinctive assumption that the self is some kind of core or center of consciousness. Instead, the self pervades all of consciousness and can be extracted from it. With all due respect to Prajapati, we again find it most helpful to quote Yajnavakya for this point. As a mass of salt has no distinctive core and surface, the whole thing is a single mass of flavor, so indeed this self has no distinctive core and surface. The whole thing is a compact mass of cognition. This brings us back to the point that the self is so hard to find precisely because it is always present to us. The phenomenal character of experience itself is barely noticeable, hidden as it is, behind the false desires that come with our worldly concerns. Though this message is delivered by one god to another, it is not necessarily religious in character. Admittedly, the self-knowledge we've been talking about has something in common with a mystic's awareness of God, because it can be grasped only indirectly and not easily put into words, if at all. But it is a further step, and one taken only in the more theistic later Upanishads, 
to identify this experience with a mystical awareness of the divine. On the other hand, when you think of religion and the Upanishads, it is probably not self-knowledge that first springs to mind anyway. Your thoughts are more likely to turn to the cycle of rebirth and above all to the law of karma, which governs the fate of each individual in the next life. To what extent is that idea really distinctive of the Upanishads, and how can we understand the whole idea of karma from a philosophical point of view? You won't have to wait 101 years to find out, because that will be our next topic on the history of philosophy in India.